0: Often people ask where you were on a particular date or time. Well, in 1974, four years before I was born, there were bombings in two public houses in Birmingham, which killed 21 people and injured over 100. It was a case that shocked the nation. However, what happened was this. Six men, six innocent men, were wrongfully convicted of the offence, and they spent years and years in prison fighting to clear their names they became known as the Birmingham Six. And it was a miscarriage of justice case that shocked the nation and shook the criminal justice system to its core. Paddy Hill was one of those people. And you will remember that when we spoke to Mike O'Brien, he talked about how Paddy was one of the people that helped him when he was in prison. And we also spoke to Michelle Diskin-Bates, who talked in her episode about how Mojo had supported her in her hour of need. Mojo was the charity and organisation that was set up by Paddy Hill upon his release. He wanted to give a voice to the innocent and the people he had left behind. Initially in this episode, I speak to Ewan, Mojo's legal officer, and he talks about the work that they do to help the wrongfully convicted. And then I go on to talk to him about the Scottish legal system. We also speak to two students who are working at the moment with Mojo. The key thing from this episode is this. There are so many people around who want to make a difference. But if we don't learn from our mistakes, if we don't improve the criminal justice system, if we don't take on board what's happened and try and fix the problems that are so blatant to many people who work in the system, then nothing's going to change. There are going to be people wrongfully convicted. There are going to be people falsely accused. And of course, that could be you. That could be a family member or friend or someone you love. Hello and welcome to this podcast. I wondered if you could just introduce yourself, the listeners.
1: Hello, my name is Ewan McIntyre, and I am the legal officer and general counsel uh, at a charity called the Miscarriages of Justice Organisation.
0: And how long have you worked for the charity?
1: I have now worked for the charity for five years, three of those as a volunteer and two employed in the roles which are now old.
0: And I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about Mojo and and how it started and why it started and what sort of things it does to help people.
1: Um, Mojo uh, in its current uh, form in Scotland was founded in 2001 by Paddy Hill who is probably best known as one of the Birmingham Six, six men who were uh, wrongfully convicted in the 1970s for The bombing of two pubs in Birmingham. When Paddy Hill came out of prison, having been exonerated 16 years into a life sentence, he um, decided that there was a crying need for someone who had experience of the system and how it goes wrong to assist those who were the remaining and continuing victims of the system. So he um, committed to spend a year of his life campaigning for In the first instance, others whom we had left behind in prison. Uh, And secondly, for those who had come out of prison, having served sentences for crimes they didn't commit. And for all, it was a one year commitment. Here we are now, 21 years later, uh, trying to uh, continue Paddy's work and to provide a legacy for him.
0: And I wondered if you could just give us a sort of an idea of how many people ask for help on a sort of yearly
1: basis. It's interesting in that the, the number of applications that we receive stayed fairly static for a number of years. And then about four years ago, it started to tick up the way. So four years ago, we were taking about 120 applications for assistance. Now, uh, even allowing for the COVID pandemic, we're fielding 250 applications for assistance. in a
0: year. And obviously, those applications have to be looked at so how many people sort of do or how many cases do you take on board having looked at the applications it's
1: interesting that we we provide principally two distinct but um related services to those whom we um we identify as being suitable for our support they perhaps the more important of these certainly the more productive of these is what we call our aftercare and reintegration service, where we assist those who we believe to have been wrongfully convicted in reintegrating to their families and thereafter into society on their release from prison, often after very long periods of imprisonment. Now, um, that is those who have been released on exoneration by the appeal court or those who are released on completion of their sentence. What we also do as a, a separate function is we seek to um, formulate and pursue appeals against conviction for others who are still in prison, in uh, serving sentences for offences which we believe they did not commit. Uh, really, what how it works is that uh, a client's engagement with Mojo will normally start uh, when they are asking us for assistance in the second of those categories, that is in formulating and pursuing an appeal against conviction. Um, once they then come out of prison again, whether on exoneration or just because they've served their sentence, they then move into our aftercare service, now, which you know seeks to deal with very damaged, uh, sometimes broken people, who having spent long periods of incarceration, and particularly for offences they didn't commit, have very significant challenges both psychological and practical. So in terms of the aftercare service, what we will do in the first instance is meet with them in prison before release, identify a care plan for them, which meets their specific and individual needs and aspirations. And then we will develop a means by which we can ease them back into society over a period of time. But in the first instance, it's a very immediate requirements like getting them housing, getting them benefits, getting them registered with a doctor and a dentist. Um we have a a very um a very generous, helpful, forensic psychiatrist who assists us on a pro bono basis and we we avail those services in order to address the long term and ongoing psychological problems that the clients face.
0: What sort of issues do you, people tend to have when they've been a victim of miscarriage of justice? There's obviously the short-term issues, but there are long-term issues as well. There
1: are displacement, there, is, uh, there are trust issues, and there are anxiety issues. Um, let's just at these uh, one at a time. The displacement issue, it is inevitable if you spend, let's say, 10, 15 years in a very controlled environment where nothing changes day to day, where every decision about your life is taken for you, where you are completely regimented to then emerge into a society which has moved on when you haven't, a society with which you have no recent experience and for which you are not equipped because the prison service doesn't equip you um, to face the changes in society when you come out, particularly if you are someone maintaining innocence. You know, there are very simple issues like teaching people how to deal with getting on and off a bus, being crowds of people on a bus going into shops, which are now very very different from how they were even fifteen years ago, crossing the streets when there's more traffic. These are very simple issues to most of us who have not, you know, suffered this this sort of hardship. It's almost impossible to imagine that these things are a difficulty at all. But for clients of ours, particularly those who have spent a lengthy periods incarcerated, these are actually very very significant issues indeed. The other Principal issue that we have is that invariably those who ask us to support them have huge trust issues. And I think that's understandable. We're, you know, we're brought up in this country to understand that the criminal justice system is there to protect us and keep us safe. It is there to keep the bad guys at bay. If it then accuses you, convicts you and punishes you for an offence that you did not commit your trust in the system as a whole simply evaporates. And one of the greatest difficulties that we have, and, and part of the reason why our casework function is so much of a feeder for the aftercare service is that in dealing with and interacting with clients while they're still in prison during their sentence trying to work in appeals for them, we are able to develop and build and earn the trust that is essential to then to be able to effectively deliver the aftercare service. So dealing with people who trust no one um, And trust, as, as you will know, is not something that you can demand. It has to be earned, uh, particularly from, with, with people whose trust has been so um, so very starkly removed from. You know, the, the key to our being able successfully to deliver our aftercare service is to first build the necessary trust. We're asking people to go on limbs, figuratively speaking. We're asking people to challenge themselves in reintegrating not just to society but to their own families but asking them to get out from inside the protective shell in which they've placed themselves over many, many years where um, in prison every encounter is potentially a conflict and there is potential danger there where every corner that you might walk around carries threat we are it's encouragement ultimately, this and all, we are encouraging people to get over that to get back out into the wide world and live their lives and we need to have a high level of trust in us on the part of the client before they'll allow us to do that so the first thing we have to address is trust obviously there are other practical requirements i spoke about i mean go things like housing benefits healthcare and what have you and then the next um significant issue that has to be addressed is the psychological damage that has been done to people who have been wrongfully convicted and it is inevitable. It is not avoidable. The leading authority on uh, prison-related, miscarriage of justice-related stress, uh, hitherto was a quite well-known uh, Cambridge scientist, uh, Professor Adrian Grounds, who, um who is the author of the leading study on these things. And he identified that if you spend five years in prison for a crime that you didn't commit, then you will inevitably suffer from a particularly severe form of post-traumatic stress disorder. It is therefore the case that every one of our clients, every one of our clients coming out of prison, whether, um, you know, at the best of the appeal court or just on time served, they all suffer from a form of post-traumatic stress disorder which is extreme to the extent of being equivalent, I am told, right, by those who know this better than me, it's equivalent to battlefield stress. So there are, you know, difficult challenges. You're trying to Encourage people to expand into a meaningful life for themselves to become, you know, contributing members of society. That's a huge handle, because everything is terrifying.
0: Well, I know that you're based in Glasgow, yeah. but the people you support can they be from any part of you? Yeah, support? Or in,
1: does it temporal The Aftercare and the Service, we have a number of clients who are products of the English justice system and we continue to support them. The casework support, that is the formulation in pursuit of appeals, we restrict that to cases which have been decided by the Scottish courts, and there are two fairly simple reasons for that. Um, firstly, our legal team are Scottish law trained, mm-hmm. but not any other. They're not trained in English law, and there are. you know Although the systems are broadly similar, there are some fairly significant differences. But the second reason for it is that the, the level of... Um, interest in and demand for our service is such that in order to properly service every client we take on we have to restrict the numbers we can take on.
0: Absolutely, Um, so how many are you currently sort of working with in terms of the appeal process?
1: The process that we go through with every application we receive is quite long and convoluted. We're an innocence project, so as a solicitor, a practicing solicitor, I would have no difficulty in assisting someone to appeal against a conviction where that conviction was obtained, for example, by some breach of due process. Mm -hmm. Um, As lawyers, we recognise and understand that that a person who is wrongfully convicted for any reason is entitled to the conviction course. Mojo is slightly different. Mojo is an innocence project and it is therefore an essential part of our work. That We only assist those whom we believe to have an objectively statable claim to factual innocence of the offence. Which are offences, of which they've been convicted. So we have to be satisfied that they didn't commit the crime, and that's a different thing. It's a it's a higher standard if you like.
0: So so how do you make that sort of assessment if, like you said, because quite a higher standard
1: than well, it is a higher standard, and you know there is a there is the risk of appearing to play God in this. I'm trying very hard not to do that, but we simply say to the intending. Appellant, the applicant for our service, we explain the nature of our remit that we are an innocence project, that we require the the client to um, justify their claim to factual innocence, and in the first months of our engagement with the client, that is all we look at. We test to destruction the claim to factual innocence. If we, we obviously don't require anyone. To prove their innocence, no, they don't have to stand their claim up to that extent because it's a practical, a practical impossibility. But you'd look, you'd at, look at the
0: papers, look you'd at look at the, the evidence, case
1: papers. We look at what they're saying. We look at the Crown's case was, We look at the defence case was. Mm-hmm. We test the client's narrative as robustly as we can in order to come to, you know, theoretical objective view. Obviously, it's a subjective view, but if we are satisfied. That the applicant has a legitimately arguable claim to being factually innocent, then we will take the case on and we will try to put together an appeal. Now, in terms of the 250 applications that would take a year, the factual innocence test will weed out most of those. Um, in terms of cases that we are currently assessing on that basis, I have something in the order of 92, 93 cases under assessment. Wow, that's
2: cases. a lot of yes, cases. It's a lot
1: of casework. Cases which have passed through that process, where we're satisfied on the fact of innocence death and where we're looking to formulate appeals, mm, probably about, right now, 15 to 20. And of those cases, actually in in the process of having appeals framed for them, about seven or eight just now.
0: So you really do very carefully at uh, every application that you get for the for the reasons like you said that it's really important the integrity of Mojo is well, indeed, you help the innocent
1: indeed and and, and and we're acutely aware of the fact that the reality is that we are probably the last chance to learn for most of these people normally our applicants will come to us only after we have had an, had an unsuccessful appeal at the appeal court and commonly after in addition to that, They've had an unsuccessful application to the Scottish Criminal Cases Review Commission. And they come to us because they have nowhere else to go. They also come to us because in that situation, there is no funding for legal assistance. The Legal Aid Board does not support these people. They have no access to funding, therefore they have no access to lawyers, therefore they have no access to justice. That's a gap that we are trying to fill, Um, and it's a big gap.
0: And I wondered if you could just help because obviously I practice in England and I'm allowed to practice also in Wales uh, under my practicing certificate. And when I research the Scottish system, because as you know, we're going to be talking to Jimmy in the future. And it is, like you said, there are some similarities, but there are some massive differences. Yeah. So for instance, my understanding is juries, But in the Scottish system... It's it's different. I wonder if you could just briefly explain how it works.
1: It's fundamentally different. First of all, in a Scottish jury there are fifteen people, or at least it starts with fifteen jurors. <laughs> now, in your jurisdiction as in any other, um, there is provision whereby a juror might become ill halfway through the trial or whatever. Yeah. Juries don't always end with the same number of people as as were in panel at the start. But a Scottish jury is fifteen members. Whereas you have qualified majority voting, 10-2, for example, we have simple majority voting. And therefore, you can be convicted on an 8-7 split vote in a jury in Scotland.
0: That sounds quite frightening. Uh, Yeah. Because, you know, even in our situation, it can be quite contentious at times, but a simple majority. So if seven people think that you haven't committed the offence, that the prosecution haven't proved to the required standard, which is the same as in England. Yes. Um they have to be sure, beyond a reasonable doubt, it doesn't matter because if eight find them
1: that's guilty that's that I, it? you know, I've listened to very senior members of the Scottish Bar, better lawyers than me certainly, who have, you know, blithely assured the public that in our know, experience Scottish juries generally get it right. I'm not so sure but that's probably because of where i work and the people with whom i work and my knowledge of the extent in fact installment of the problem of miscarriage of justice but i would have i would have thought as a matter of simple logic that if seven out of 15 jurors are not convinced that the standard of proof has been met that amounts to a reasonable doubt hey, that's not how the system works um the thing is we never get to hear what the the majority is in a majority verdict, the uh, well, in any trial, once the jury delivers its verdict, they're asked, how do you find the accused guilty or not guilty or not proven? And they give an answer to that. And then they're asked, was that uh, unanimous or by majority? And they will declare it was a majority, majority. So you don't get to well, know how do that's split. Know how many people voted that and okay. um, But, you know, it is a theoretical, and I'm sure... It's a theoretical yeah. possibility and I'm, I'm sure a practical reality that you get eight seven splits
0: the other big difference is there's three verdicts in scotland i wonder yeah. if you could just explain that because i found that concept really hard to get my head around in particular the concept of not proven but i wonder if you could explain
1: yeah it's uh the act of Scots law which some Scottish lawyers are proud of for reasons that escape me. Um, to put it in historical context, the reason it's there, I think, is because originally in Scottish courts the available verdicts were proven and not proven. Right. And to bring us into line with other jurisdictions, the not guilty thing was brought in. But the not proven verdict was retained. Um, so, it is an absolute, it's, a, it, it's an absolute verdict of acquittal. It has exactly the same effect as not guilty. But it is... Listen, this has been controversial since the dawn of time. I mean, Walter Scott described it as that bastard verdict. It has not been um, well-liked, certainly not universally liked you know, probably ever.
0: Because when I was looking things up, before I sort of read that, in my head you hear, not proven, and it's that misconception, you're going to think that that means maybe they thought someone did something, but they weren't sure when in fact that's not the case. It's like you said, it's the same as a not guilty verdict, but not only that, it's meant to have the same legal consequences and someone can be found not guilty on the basis that they might think they did it, but they weren't sure. Well, so it seems a bit of a like a strange concept for I, someone who practises in England.
1: I am of the school of Scottish lawyers who think that it's wholly an appropriate like, and the sooner we're rid of the better and there are a variety of reasons for that. Um, the popular perception of it is that it is a verdict which allows a jury to criticise an accused person against whom there is however insufficient evidence to bring in a conviction. In effect, it says, we think you did this, but because the Crown has not met the necessary standard of proof, we can't convict you, so we're not going to convict you. You think it unlogically in any other jurisdiction. Someone in that position would automatically be the recipient of a not guilty verdict because it's very simple. Unless and until the Crown proves its case beyond a reasonable doubt, the accused person is deemed to be innocent. Uh, It is therefore a matter of simple logic that anyone in Scotland who receives a not proven verdict would in any other jurisdiction by definition have received a not guilty verdict. which which to me gives the light of another popular misconception um, that, you know, this is just uh, an easy way for lawyers to get more guilty people off the hook, as it were. I don't think that proposition stands scrutiny at all. But where it's really, really problematic is that it's the perception of this verdict. It's a verdict of acquittal. When judges are charging juries, they make it clear to the jury: you bring in a not proven it's a verdict of acquittal. It's exactly the same as a not guilty, but the practical implications are are very far from the same. Because anyone who receives a not proven verdict is stigmatised, stigmatised as being almost certainly guilty or probably guilty or guilty, but there just wasn't enough evidence. And, it's and going that's to going to affect them
0: in their future in terms of the jobs they want to do or the opportunities they may have?
1: That's entirely true, simply because anyone looking at the fact of this verdict um, and not properly understanding what it actually means is likely to discriminate against the recipient of the verdict. We're going to hear more about this from Jimmy Boyle uh, because he's an example of how... Very significant, the consequences of that duty can be in practice. Um, But we have been debating this in Scotland for a long time. There has recently been quite a lot of debate. There's been a consultation by the Scottish Government to which we contributed. We asked, please, can this verdict be done away with and removed, taken away forever? And it it seems that the current direction of travel, listening to what the Scottish Government are now saying, is that the non-proven verdict is on its last legs.
0: But well, I guess that doesn't help others who have that, Absolutely. that verdict. Um, Absolutely not. You know, because it's not going to change retrospectively what, what's happened.
1: Absolutely not. Um, and it is the case that certainly the press, whether um, by accident or by design, they uh, constantly misdefine what well, a not-proven verdict is. They sell this as someone escaping a legitimate guilty verdict by virtue of some shady reason. I mean, as lawyers, you know, the fact that there wasn't enough evidence, that tells you there shouldn't be a conviction anyway. Yeah. But public perception is, is but the per- it, Like you said, it's I the mean, perception, The perception is you got away with
0: it. Yeah. And and not just the public, if other authorities, and obviously we'll, we'll be talking to Jimmy about that in due course, but if other authorities, public authorities have that misperception, yeah. then it's almost impossible really to move on for some people. It depends on the sort of career you want and the job you want, but but, it's, but that's the difficulty oh, you're going to find. Oh, isn't or it? no
1: career, no job. wouldn't you want to be a gentleman of pleasure. Yeah, I'm it's still that stigma, you're, isn't you're it? You're entitled not to be stigmatized yeah. in respect of a charge of which you were acquitted. But and you then, feel that stigma because of this exactly. strange concept. Did you didn't get quite acquitted yeah. the, is the perception of that. You know, it's unique to Scotland. Um, I, I see no justification for it. Uh, I've heard people argue in favour of it. And to be honest with you, I've never really fully understand what the argument is in favour of it.
0: If you could give, in your experience of practising and also working for Mojo, someone a bit of advice who is either about to face trial or is a victim of a miscarriage of justice what would the advice be
1: to someone who is a victim of a miscarriage of justice yeah it's hard to think of any blanket statement i could make no because i appreciate that there's lots of and everyone's, case, know, is everyone's different. case is is, is unique uh, everyone's for all the types of miscarriage of justice that we see have a certain sameness to them we see go wrong for broadly similar reasons time after time after time, which another problem with our system, which I don't understand. It, it it is it is designed to perpetuate these things, and if I may, I'll explain to you what I mean by that. If you think about other areas of human endeavour, um, the analogy I, I, I normally use is commercial aviation. <laughs> in the early days of commercial flight, you'd have to have death stuff to get in an aeroplane.
0: Yeah,
1: and only the kind of boys' own heroes. <laughs> and entertain the idea of taking to the skies. And over the years, over time, planes have crashed, but there has been, in every single instance, an exhaustive investigation into why it happened, how it happened, and how do we design that flaw out of the system. And as a result of that ongoing process of introspection um, and, 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 and and proper scrutiny of why things have gone wrong, it's not the safest means of transport there is. You yeah. will fly, fly off on your holidays the most dangerous part of the journey, is your can't drive to the airport. But that didn't happen by accident. It's because proper care and attention was paid to why it went wrong, how it went wrong in the past. And these weaknesses and failures have been designed out of the system. Contrast and compare with where we have a miscarriage of justice in Scotland. There is precisely no investigation into what happened. Precisely no scrutiny of where it went wrong, why it went wrong, how it went wrong. And if we don't learn the lessons... Of bitter experience, then we are doomed to continue to experience exactly the same things, and that is what is happening. And in this organization, we see 250 people apply to us a year. Where you know, the root causes are four or five causes. It's it, you know, it's the same things that go wrong time after time after time. What is the sort of top three that, that tends, Look, tends the, to the, the, the number one, I mean, in broad general terms, is human error. It is people not doing their job properly, people missing.
0: And is that Um, the people who are prosecuting and also the people defending, or is there sort of...
1: I I think there is is fault on both sides. Listen, I mean, the criminal justice system is a human construct. It's administered at all its level by human beings. It's subject to human fallibility at all its level. And that's fine. I mean, we understand that. But But if we identify particularly where there are repeated instances of the same thing going wrong, it shouldn't be beyond just to design that out of the system.
0: No. And if you don't, like you said, if you don't learn from your mistakes, yeah. they're just going to keep on happening. But yeah. I, these are is. these are
1: people's lives. Well, indeed, and, and the consequences are around it. This is one of the reasons why I personally, you know, consider perhaps the most important thing that I do in my job in the years. I train law students, youngsters who are about to inherit the justice system and the legal profession, and we raise their awareness of how it goes wrong and how it might be possible to avoid it going wrong in the future. In the hope and I appreciate this is a very gradualist approach, but it is at least an approach. My hope is that, as practicing lawyers, having been made aware of where the law goes wrong, that they might avoid that in a few of the cases in the future, and we can bring the instance of it down. My hope, and I, I am confident that of the students, 27, 28 students just now, two or three of them lined up on the bench one day. And then, that would be a good thing to have members of the bench who, from an early stage in their career, have been made aware of the pitfalls uh, and, you know, the, the the weaknesses in the system which get, give rise to miscarriage of justice. And Hopefully, over time, we can reduce the instance of it. But it is alarming with prevalent just now. And it hasn't gone away.
0: No. Things, like you said, people aren't really looking into, or well, they're not looking into what's going wrong. And, and if you don't know what's going problem, wrong, you can't fix it.
1: We don't learn the lessons of history. Yeah, but we are inevitably going to make the same mistakes again. But here's the numbers. Um, you know, most people, if you ask, if you and I went out in the street and, and, and just pick people at random and ask them, what do you know about the of justice? Virtually all of them would say that was a problem maybe in the 1970s. 1980s, it's been sorted. Now, we had all these high-profile cases, the Birmingham 6, the Guilford 4, and the Wire 7, all these egregious miscarriages of justice. People's perception is that the problem has gone away.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: So, the numbers, um, unfortunately, because COVID, I haven't been able to update these numbers. The most recent figures I have are the figures for the five years to 2017. Mm-hmm. But in the, in, in the Scottish Appeal Court, in respect only of jury trial. In that five-year period, the court recognised 110 miscarriages of justice. 110, that's yes. a real significant 22 a year. nearly answer. two a month. Yeah. That's not a problem that's gone away. No. Now, that's the ones they recognise. Now, I don't know about your system. I suspect it's much like ours in Scotland. But the appeal court is a very unforgiving place to try and get a result. Absolutely. They're not generous. They're not going their, to just... Washing they're television. not going to
0: find... In every appeal case that's referred to them, whether it's by the Criminal
1: Case Review Commission or... Well, the numbers by the individual. are particularly interesting in that they are much more generous on first appeals than they are with referrals from the Scottish Criminal Cases Review Commission. The success rate on the commission um, referrals is, is lamentable. In the last five years to 2020, again, in terms of what we call solemn appeals, that's appeals from jury trial. mm mm-hmm the Scottish Criminal Case Review Commission has referred only five appeals. Five? And only one of those was successful.
0: Five appeals? Yeah. Wow. That is quite shocking, is
1: it? There's been quite a long history of the CCRC in England. Yeah. And they have come under, I'm sure, justified criticism for the way they operate. And I was horrified when I read the reports that they were trying to, they decided they might maybe model themselves on the Scottish equivalent. I mean, you really want to be careful what you wish for.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. Well. Uh, and I've learnt a lot. I've certainly learnt how the Scottish system, whilst, like you said, there are some similarities, there's some yeah. real key differences that are really...
1: Here's the thing, um, every single appeal we work on, I only route the courts through the SCCRC. The SCCRC was up just after the SCCRC. It's been only over 22 years. The first nine years of its existence, oh. it referred 8.4% of the applications it got, which is a half-decent number. Yeah. Because they're going to get time wasters. Yeah, of course you're going to going get it. everyone it, yeah, yeah, yeah. So 8.5, oh, that's
0: risk Yeah.
1: Over the course of the first 20 years of their existence, that figure fell to 5.6%. So you can see what the direction of travel is. Yeah. It's only when you look at the last five years, the referral rate went down to 1.9%. So it started off at 8.4%, then down at 1.9%. What started off as a gateway to the Appeal Court is now a gatekeeper for the Appeal Court. And that's the reality of how it works, and they probably wouldn't be very pleased to hear me say that if they ever do. But that's how it is. But the
0: statistics speak speak for
1: themselves. And every single case that we take in, the only route I've got for any of those is through a commission that's referring 1.9% of its applications. And uh, they're all solemn appeals, they're all jury trials, and they've won success in five years. Wow. So you'll understand that the initial discussion with the clients has to be a difficult discussion.
0: Yeah, you have, have to to, you have to be realistic. We will knock ourselves
1: out for you if we believe in you. Yeah. But your chances are not great.
0: No. I, I, and that's the only way that you can be, is to be honest with people from the outside. Absolutely,
1: because it will come back on you. It if
0: comes you back on you, promises, yeah.
1: They're going to come back and say, wait a minute, you said yeah. you were going to do this.
0: Uh, and it's You're all, all about it. trust, exactly. as you said from the beginning, and to win, the cr- to win
1: their Here's trust. Here's the funny thing. The clients love us for being brutally honest with them because we're the first people in the legal sphere who have done that with them. People have blown smoke out their arse. Their own lawyers, pardon the expression. No. And the thing is... It's a breath of fresh air for someone to say, you know what, you're in real stuk here. We'll do our level best to help you, but there are limits to what we'll be able to achieve. Yeah. And the mere fact that you're prepared to do that goes a long way to building the trust. Yeah. So we can do the real important work with them, get them into the aftercare service, get their life started out.
0: But be honest, like you said, about them and, and be realistic about their expectations. Don't get wrong.
1: You're trying very hard to win appeals. No. You're trying very hard to win appeals.
0: I appreciate that. But if you're not, like you said, realistic with yeah. them, that doesn't help them in the long term. Of course it doesn't. And it,
1: you're just somebody else they can't trust. Yeah. Because if you make promises that are not delivered, you're just not the rest of them. Yeah. And that is my mantra in here. Never, ever, ever promise something you don't know you can deliver.
0: No, absolutely well, that's always the best way to be. Certainly, in my practice, you've got to be like that because if you, like you said, say that something's going to happen, it doesn't. Not only does it destroy their expectations and their trust, exactly. but it also comes back to bite on you because and your reputation means nothing. But it's
1: not only that; then we have to feel good at ourselves.
0: Yeah, you've got to you've got to
1: be frank. Um, but and those I, I wouldn't be able to love with myself. Kathy wouldn't be able to love with herself. Scott wouldn't be able to love with himself if we were laying down fines and that, we yeah. just wouldn't do it.
0: No, and and that's why that brutal honesty is the only way you can do it. Yes, But it is shocking to hear those statistics. And certainly it's been a real insight into how the Scottish system works. And yeah, we're neighbours, we're all part of the UK. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Uh,
1: yeah.
0: it is quite different in some ways. For but now, yeah, all there all are. are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, well on that note, thank you very much for your time. I wondered if you could just introduce yourself for the podcast listeners.
2: My name's Alexandra Adair. I'm currently doing a Master's in Applied Criminology and Forensic Psychology. So
0: for those of us who haven't studied that sort of area before, what does that entail your, your course?
2: It's essentially a double degree in a way. So the criminological side is looking at the, the structural issues that interplay with crime and, and how these interact and then the forensic psychology is looking at the, the mental side so why people might commit crime or how certain life experiences can contribute to a person's decision to engage in criminal activity. And how long have you been volunteering here for? Oh, I've only been here since the start of June.
0: And is that something that was set up by your university?
2: Yeah, there's, you have to do a work placement, but luckily you get to choose. And I always wanted to apply here, but of course you have to have the relevant qualifications. So this was my opportunity to to do it. And what what interests you about volunteering here compared to maybe some other type of organisation? I just think the fact that it's the only place that focuses on miscarriages of justice and the victims of the justice system, you know, our whole degree is really focused on people who commit crime, but it's good to take that different perspective and the people that are accused of committing crime who actually don't, and how, again, these social factors and structural factors can contribute to those instances.
0: So what sort of work have you been doing? With the charity since you've been here, yeah.
2: So I've not moved on to actual cases yet to um, to work on appeals. Um, I don't have a law background, so it takes a bit longer to learn all these things, I guess. So my main work at the moment has been looking at well case studies, really, to try and find patterns of social factors that might suggests some kind of contribution to miscarriages of justice. So for example, the cases I've been looking at, there seems to be a pattern of potential poverty of the people that are accused of committing crime who who haven't committed it, or lower intellectual functions or lower social functions there just there appears to be from I haven't gone into great analysis yet but I'm just trying to pick out actual social information to see how it all forms part of a bigger picture
0: and so in due course hopefully you'll you'll do some casework as well yeah when you have finished your course and uh, you obviously look into the future how do you want to use this experience in terms of your career, your chosen career?
2: Yeah, I mean, to be able to support people better who are falsely accused of crime and also to hopefully contribute to change, like actual change in the criminal justice system. So, being aware of the mistakes that are often made and how to avoid those or maybe spot them sooner. Um, is...
0: So, so is your intention to work with people who are victims of miscarriage of justice or just to work with people in general yeah. who are either accused or yeah have been convicted?
2: Just to work within the criminal justice system but to do it more honestly and fairly I think I want to have all experience so I can go in with a a true representation of what my role is and how I can do things in the right way.
0: And so from working here I imagine that's going to give you really good insight yeah definitely into what you need to do
2: yeah i mean i think it's very easy to study crime and just get an image of what a criminal looks like and
0: when yeah you... there's this perception isn't there that, yeah. that all murderers look a certain way or all sex
2: offenders look a certain yeah. way or have a same background yeah, yeah. and that's just not the case of is it of course it's not the same with anything i you get anybody from all walks of life so We just, we have to be more critical and real about how we're approaching criminal cases. So this will be able to give me valuable insight, especially talking to the actual victims of miscarriages of justice. It just, it lets you know what happens in the real world. I think we're often, as the public, we're often kind of shielded from the real policies and practices. We're just kind of told statistics and expected to trust them and I definitely have less trust (laughs) in the agents of the criminal justice system now (laughs) but at least then you're, you're gaining the tools like you said to hopefully
0: not only help people in the future but to make a difference a real change
2: yeah avoid all those mistakes or or pick them out or just be able to be a bit of an advocate for the people who might be victims I think they're left on their own a lot especially like I said the folk that maybe don't have the means to stand up for themselves against the state. You know, it's such a massive ordeal.
0: Absolutely. So, and sometimes people don't know what it's like until they're in the system.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I what think, it's
0: really like,
2: yeah, that's what Cathy says yeah. and from here. It's just anybody can be a victim. And it's really, it's kind of not thought about or talked about in public until suddenly you are accused and it's you against the entire Scottish criminal justice system, it's kind of a losing battle. So we need people that actually have the knowledge and the experience to stand for them.
0: And the passion. Yeah. Which obviously you, you and Megan have, and that's, and that's why you're doing this in your own time.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, thank you ever so much for talking to me on the podcast. Okay. That's really important. Thank you. Hello Megan, I wondered if you could just introduce yourself for the podcast listeners. Yeah, Uh, I'm Megan Allen and
3: I'm going into my final year of the LLB at Glasgow Caledonian University and as part of a module last year called Professional Links we were given a placement where I ended up here at the Miscarriages of Justice organisation and enjoyed it so much that I've continued to do it throughout the summer as a volunteer and the
0: rewards and gains from it is something you just won't receive anywhere else so yeah. so what sort of work do you do with Mojo as part of your volunteering
3: well when I was in
0: yeah uni we were like given
3: the basics of it online like taught about the SC, SCCRC and like the basics of like detecting factual innocence and and then when Uni finished, the op- the office opened, so it kind of came at the perfect time for me to have learned the basics to then come into the office and start cracking on with our own cases. So we were given a case each, either just like to review, and then we decide if the case is factually innocent, and then if it is, then you and I'll take the case on. If not, we'll sit and discuss it with him. And if we, if neither if we come to an opinion that it's not factually innocent and the case isn't worth taking on, then that's that's that,
0: we will not do it. Yeah, because I heard, well we heard from you in earlier about how obviously you have to, it's an innocence project, so an innocence charity, so you obviously get, like you said, to look at the evidence Mm -hmm. and have to look at what the accused, yeah, convicted person said and what Uh they're saying now and then from that you then you have you to make form an opinion. opinion
3: yeah so i'm i'm just at the end of my first case now i'm getting to the end of the crown productions um but you you don't see much of the uh, the accused opinion or like the, or their their defence a lot of what i've seen is the crown productions so it's difficult to make a form a based opinion
0: on the crown productions which clearly is going against them can you help me understand that? Because obviously there's different terminology. Yeah. And I practice in England Wales. So what what does that mean? So the ground production is the
3: prosecutor fiscal's work. And it's, and then... So it's their evidence. Yeah, that's their evidence that they, they've used in court to convict. So that could be statements, witness statements. Yeah, so I've read witness statements. Yeah, a lot of witness statements, which is really just... Hard to hard to read and police statements and a lot of police evidence, but there's not a lot of criminal defence evidence. So it's hard to make a based opinion when you really just look at the evidence that goes against them. But when you look at well, you, you do get to see their opinion and their state like the accused opinion when they give their statement to the police. But that's really all I've seen of his opinion. So then once we come to a based opinion on whether we think that the case is factually innocent. Um I would then get to go and visit the accused in well the convicted person in prison and to to then take the case on and effectively
0: declare it as a miscarriage of justice. So you would work with them, but initially like so you're just looking at the prosecution evidence because yeah. at the end of the day it's the prosecution that That's, has to convince people yeah. So that they're sure, cool. mm-hmm, um, prove beyond a reasonable doubt the case. Yep. So that's why you focus on that and then you talk to the accused yeah. or the convicted person mm-hmm. to then get, to uh, then get a, a bigger picture, understanding of it. Yeah. And you said that you find them work, the work you're doing very rewarding. In the long term, do you hope to practice criminal law or have you got other aspirations? Well, I've always been interested in
3: criminal law, but I've swayed sweden. Different areas of it, but originally it was criminal defense that I wanted to do, and then I decided no, absolutely not. After being a witness myself in court, I was like, no, never. So then I decided I would like to be a procurator fiscal, and I've kind of always stuck with that idea. So this placement really is so helpful for me because it ensures that if I do become a procurator
0: fiscal, I know the pitfalls of a miscarriage of justice.
3: Well,
2: I'm
0: really grateful, Megan, for you sharing what you're doing. And I think that's interesting that you're going to use this this experience and when you prosecute, then you can make sure that everything yeah. is done properly and fairly so that the people who are guilty are prosecuted fairly. fairly. Mm-hmm. But if someone isn't guilty, then you ensure that everything is properly reviewed and investigated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. No problem. It's every person's worst nightmare when you're falsely accused of committing sex offences and you're a teacher in a secondary school. It must be a horrific ordeal. And whilst I've represented lots of people who have been accused of historical sex offences, I can never put myself in that position because it's not happened to me. In the next episode, we talk to Jimmy Boyle. This is exactly what happened to him. He was a teacher, he loved his job, and he was falsely accused of sex offences. He was convicted and spent a number of years in prison. However, he has been unable to return to the job he loves, even though he has cleared his name.